Right, we are starting our study of the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, so if you would please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and let's read verses 1 and 2. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What a great way to start a book, right? Have you ever felt that way, though? Have you ever experienced that? Maybe you've been working and working to accomplish something and you reach that goal and then feel kind of let down. All the energy and all the excitement and enthusiasm just seems to evaporate. Um, Not to uh, let the air out of too many balloons this morning, but that's how I felt when I finished my undergraduate degree. (laughs) You know, man, working, working, working so hard to get this thing done. And honestly, I mean, going through the ceremony was wonderful and putting on the robe and walking across the stage and getting that tube. And actually there was a piece of paper in it. That was awesome. I, I loved that moment, putting it on the wall. But then when it was over, it was over. And then I went and did more school. And, you know, in that moment... The thrill just kind of evaporated. Have you ever experienced you've been saving and saving for something that you really want to purchase, you want to own, and once you get it, you use it for a while and you get a little bored with it or it breaks or whatever, right? I remember the first car that I saved for that I really, myself, I wanted to buy. I got a maroon Honda Accord, five-speed, and this thing would move. It was awesome. It was such a great car, and I was so excited about it and so much fun to drive. And then I realized, you know, after I'd had it about a month, that it was, it was just a car, and I'm just driving around. It was just transportation. I remember that feeling on, on, on Christmas, right? You, you picked out the stuff that you wanted, and you got maybe one or two of the toys you really wanted, and then you realized a month or two later that you weren't playing with that thing any longer, right? It was just sitting in the closet. Or it was under the bed, or it was broken, It was a letdown. Or or have you ever planned a vacation? You're so excited about the vacation, you get to that vacation, but it takes you about three days just to relax and wind down and stop thinking about everything that's back home. And so then you've been wound up for three days and then you've got a day where you really enjoy it. And then the next three days you're thinking about getting back home and everything you've got to get done. Have you ever felt that before? It's terrible. Or you work and you work and you work all week long to prepare a sermon and you deliver it and no one remembers it in a week. You don't even remember it. You're like, oh man, what's the point? Right? I feel that every week. What's the point? What's the point? You ever struggle with that? You ever wrestle with that? Is there enduring meaning in this life? Is there, is there lasting satisfaction and fulfillment and significance in this life? Now, here's the problem with us. We actually believe there is. And so we chase after one thing after another, thinking that it will fill us up and give us life, give us a sense of meaning that is enduring and lasting. And we discover after we've chased and chased and chased that we feel empty and incomplete. And so in our infinite wisdom, what do we do? We say, well, then I guess I just need more of that thing. Or I need another thing. And I move from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. Thinking it will fill me. Thinking it will satisfy me. Tim Keller made this simple but revealing statement. He said, getting our heart's deepest desires might be the worst thing that can ever happen to us. Now, the best thing that can happen to us is that we actually reach the end of ourselves and we turn to God and we say, God, is there meaning? 
If there is meaning, God, how do I find it? How do I discover it? The author of Ecclesiastes was wrestling with these deepest issues in life. According to tradition, the author is Solomon, but Solomon's name is never mentioned. I I think Solomon was the author. I think there's good evidence in the book. Uh, He was uh, the king of Israel. And according to his description of himself, he's the wisest king that Israel ever had. Wisest king that Israel ever had, but also a king that, although he was wise, lived very foolishly for significant portions of his life. That really fits Solomon. He describes himself in this book, though, as as Kohelet, which means the teacher or the preacher. It's one who addresses the assembly. In fact, uh, the name Ecclesiastes is from the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly. It's one who addresses the assembly. And so what we have in Ecclesiastes is a wisdom sermon. It's a wisdom sermon that some other uh, narrator collected and preserved. He wrote a sentence introduction at the beginning, and then he wrote six verses at the end that frame this sermon by Solomon. And he did that to preserve it for his son, and God took that sermon and he preserved it for us. And he put it in scripture. And the wonderful thing about Ecclesiastes is it is just as relevant today as it was 3,000 years ago when it was written. So here's the message, the essence of the message, summarized by Solomon in verses 2 through 3. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. Two keys to understanding the essence of Solomon's message. First is this phrase, under the sun. What Solomon is talking about is life under the sun. 29 times, actually, he uses this phrase, under the sun. And then he'll use the phrase as well, on earth. And what's he talking about? He's talking about this life right here, right now, on earth. This short lifespan that each of us has on earth. That's his perspective. He's writing from earth about life on earth. That's his point. Second, the word vanity, which he uses 38 times. It is literally meaninglessness of meaninglessnesses. Okay, vanity of vanities is easier to write and say. So that's what my translation has. Uh, but what does it mean? It's the Hebrew word hevel, which can refer to something that is uh, transitory, right? Or fleeting, meaningless, vain, empty, futile. In fact, what he's going to do in chapter one, which really serves as an introduction to the book, he's going to explain why all of life under the sun is meaningless. And in the rest of the book, he's going to go after one area of life after another, and demonstrate why all of these things will leave us empty. So, let's begin. Why is life under the sun vanity? First, he will say, because creation does not change. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth itself remains forever. Another generation comes and we think that there will be progress, but there's not. The earth never changed. There's the appearance of change, but nothing actually changes. Verse 5. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they will flow again. In other words, he goes from, through three areas of creation and he says they're on this 
endless cyclical pattern. In fact, the word that he uses here to describe the sun's course is really graphic. He says, uh, also the sun rises, the sun sets, and it hastens, literally it pants to its place, right? It rises and it realizes it's done its duty for the day, it's accomplished its goal, but now it's got to move on to the next day and it runs and it's panting, moving around, right? East to west, east to west, east to west, east to west. And the wind, it just swirls north to south, north to south. Not that the wind never moves any other direction, but what he's saying is east to west, north to south, all of the processes of the earth just keep churning along. Rivers even, they, they flow into the sea and the waters evaporate and they rain again down on the ground and they run into the rivers and the rivers flow into the sea. He may be thinking of the Dead Sea, right? The Jordan River goes down to the south, it flows into the Dead Sea and then it stops and there's no outlet doesn't go anywhere. Or he could be talking about any sea because this is the course of all of nature. There's the appearance of change. There's a lot of activity in nature, but there's no progress. There's no movement. There's no improvement in what's going on. One commentator said, creation is characterized by apparent change that disguises actual sameness. In fact, uh, it's actually worse than that. Creation is in decline. It's not just that it's not changing, it's actually decaying and getting worse. Paul describes this in Romans 8, verse 20. He says, The creation was subjected to futility. And that word for futility is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word hevel, emptiness, futile, meaningless. In the case of creation, groaning and suffering, and actually getting worse. My son started a lawn mowing business last summer, and so I'm working with him. I'm his employee, actually, in the lawn mowing business. And, um, you know, we, we discovered as we would go, and we'd mow a lawn, and then these are all lawns in our neighborhood. We'd come back in a few days. Well, the wonderful work we had just done just seems to be returning to its disorderly state, right? We, we mow really carefully, really good straight lines and edge well and then we wait a week we get a call and it's right back where it was before and if the rains are coming down really heavy and you're not able to mow on time gosh within a few days that lawn can just kind of get out of control and imagine we had this conversation that you leave it a month you leave it a year you leave it a decade what's going to happen to that lawn oh chaos that is the order of creation that's what happens in creation right now my foundation is cracking in my house because i live in College Station, Texas, with expansive clays, and I have erosion on the back side of my house. And so I looked out the window of our kitchen one day, and I saw the bricks had gone like this, and they had separated. It's going to cost me thousands of dollars, but if I don't spend that money, half of my house will fall off. (laughs) I mean, that's just creation. (laughs) How frustrating is that? Here's his point. All of life under the sun is vanity. That means it, it's, it's hevel. It means there's nothing that you can do to change the basic order of creation. If you try, he will say later, it is like grasping the wind. You can expend a lot of effort and accomplish nothing. That's his first point. All of life under the sun is vanity because creation does not change. And you can't do anything about that. All of life under the sun is vanity because nothing in your life will ever fully satisfy you. Verse 8. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. 
the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. But the eye wants to see, and the eye wants to see more, and the ear wants to hear, and it wants to hear more. But the more that it sees, it still remains unsatisfied with what it's seen, and the ear remains unsatisfied with what it hears. And you can try and try and try, but it'll, you'll never be satisfied. And, and literally, he says here, uh, all these things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. In other words, he's just started his sermon, and he's already tired. He's exhausted. He said, I can't even find the words to talk about how wearisome this futility is that nothing in life satisfied. And you know, we all have these things, don't we? That we think will satisfy us, but they won't. I call those the if-onlys in life, right? You all, you have those. If only. If you're in college, you say to yourself, if only. If only I had a boyfriend, right? If only I had a girlfriend, if only I had a boyfriend who was a better boyfriend. <laughs> if only I was a bit smarter. If only I had better roommates. And then later, if only, if only I was married. If only I had a husband. If only I had a wife. If only I had a, a wife who respected me. If only I had a husband who actually loved me, cared for me. If only I had children who respected me and honored me. If only I had a better job, was paid more. If only I had a better house. If only I was younger, if only I was healthier, if only, if only, if only, if only I had those things, then I'd be full, then I'd be satisfied, right? You have them. I'm not asking you to raise your hand and confess them to me. I'm just telling you, I know, because we all have those things. Solomon had those things, and he expressed the futility in chasing after them. Because Solomon was a man who had such vast resources, he could chase lots of things. And he wasn't the first to experience it, but he was one of the first probably to write about this experience. Listen to verse 4, chapter 2. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure whatsoever. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all of my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Solomon in his day He had unlimited resources to pursue every possible pleasure and possession that a man could have in his day. And he said, after I'd gotten all of that, I was empty. You're not the first to feel it, not the last to feel it. Uh, People experience that all the time, even in our day and age. I remember uh, reading an interview of Mel Gibson a few years ago after he had experienced incredible wealth and fame. He found himself empty, and so he began to chase, right? looking for something that would fill up his life. Looking, 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 looking. And really, that's, that's kind of the nature of addiction, right? Our brain becomes programmed to think, if I can just get a little bit more of that, 
Because a, a little of it didn't satisfy me, but more will satisfy me. And we go and we go and we grasp for more and more and more. Or we try something other. Right? And that's what happened to Mel Gibson after all this fame and fortune and he's completely empty. He said to himself, I would get addicted to anything, anything at all. Drugs, booze, anything. You name it. Coffee, cigarettes, didn't matter. Addicted. And then he got clean. Uh, he became sober. And he discovered he was still empty. The result, he said, I just didn't want to go on. I'd rather end life. And contemplated very seriously just ending his life. Uh, have you ever noticed how uh, strange it is that um, oftentimes people who are the wealthiest or the most successful, the most handsome, the most beautiful, really struggle uh, often most with uh, depression, high rates of suicide? Why is that? Well, because, uh, like in the case of Solomon or Mel Gibson, they have all of these resources so they can actually test everything and try everything. And after they've tested everything and tried everything and found out that they're in fact empty, they realize there's nothing else to try. So why? Why go on? Solomon is going to hammer on this point because this was such a big issue in his life. A man who experienced addiction and went after so many things and ultimately said, none of these things will satisfy me. None will fulfill me. That's vanity. That's hevel, right? All of life under the sun is empty. Why? Because nothing that you experience will ever fully satisfy you. Nothing. Third, all of life under the sun is vanity because history is not progressing. History just seems to go on and on and on, but not move anywhere. Verse 9. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it's new. Solomon says, already it has existed for ages which were before us. He says, there's actually nothing that is truly new. And we might say, well, yeah, but what about technology? Well, actually, Solomon here is talking about history. Right, that history is not progressing, but I think it's uh, fair to also apply this in our day and age to technology itself. We say, well, that's new, right? That's a new, a new piece of technology. That's a new idea. It's fresh. It's new, right? Apple products, new stuff all the time, right? It's new. I remember actually when I got my, my first iPhone, I did say to myself, wow, this is really the first thing that really amazes me technologically. <laughs> this is really cool. Uh, but it, it's not that cool to me anymore. I mean, I, you know, I've had four of them because they break or I upgrade or whatever. And, you know, and other companies come out with models that are really similar. And if you think about it, it's not actually new because human beings all do the same things through the course of history. What do we do? We eat, we sleep, right? We drink, we work, we communicate, we fight, we make peace. Okay, we do all those things. What is technology? Technology just allows us to do those things better or faster. That's all. But it's all of the same human processes that we've always been engaged in. And we could argue that, in fact, sometimes technology has some unintended consequences and makes things worse in those processes that we all engage in. Communication is a great illustration. The internet is designed to aid in communication, right? But now we have more people who are relationally disconnected because all of their friendships are only virtual. So is that, is that progress? Right, well, Solomon's actually talking about 
history, not technology, but he's saying history just repeats itself over and over and over again. There's war, there's peace, there's famine, there's prosperity. There's one generation after another generation, and they all do the same things, but they think it's all new. Anybody here seen Star Wars? Yeah, seen new Star Wars? Okay, yeah, quite a few of you, right? We, we just watched what? Let's see, episode one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We just watched episode seven, yeah. Um, it was really pretty cool. I really, I, I enjoyed it. I paid full price and went and watched and watched all the people who were dressed up like Star Wars characters. It was fun. Even the pre-show stuff, well, that was fun. I enjoyed the whole thing. Um, anybody notice anything about the plot? Those of you who watched it. <laughs> it kind of, it's kind of the same, wasn't it? Right? There's this, this orphan on a deserted kind of planet, kind of a far-off planet in the galaxy, who's got the potential to be a Jedi, and, and now it's not a he, but it's a she. She gets pulled into this cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil, and then a weapon that's like a planet blows up. Okay, I'm ready for eight. I think I, think I know what's going to happen in eight. I don't know. Maybe I'll be surprised, right? But, you know, my son went with me, and, man, we loved it. It was awesome. And he's always like, wait, Dad. Okay, Dad, you got to admit, though, I mean, the special effects are way better There's an explosion at the end, just like always, and I say to myself, son, yeah, the special effects are better, but it's still the same story, right? And that's the nature of history, right? It just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, there is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be no remembrance of them and also among those who come later still. We think it's new. Why? Because we don't remember. Right? And honestly, my kids laugh at me because I can watch the same movie again and experience it for the first time because I just don't remember movies very well. No, Dad, you did see that. I don't remember it at all. There are lots of things that I just don't remember. It's an, age, it's an age thing. 1492, I remember this though. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and he discovered America, right? For the first time. <laughs> Except that there were civilizations that had already been here for thousands of years. Actually, did you know? I just read this this week. Very interesting. The Cahokia community near St. Louis actually had a population of 40,000 in its heyday. Okay? 40,000. That population was not surpassed in a city in America until the late 18th century, Philadelphia. So I'm not knocking what Chris accomplished. (laughs) It's really quite an amazing accomplishment. However, the new world wasn't new to people who had lived here for thousands and thousands of years, right? Tristy loves uh, Ancestry.com. She's great at, she's been researching her genealogy and my genealogy and her family's and discovering uh, all kinds of interesting uh, data, trivia, facts about our families. What's interesting, though, is with Ancestry.com, often the best that you can do is to find somebody's name. Right? Maybe you find a birth certificate attached, or in the case of my uh, Swedish immigrant relatives, you can find a, a manifest where they came through Ellis Island. And, you know, so you find these little things, but, but you don't know these people. You don't, you don't know them, know them. One of the things we've been talking about decorating in, in our, one of our rooms is putting up some old black and whites of our family. And I have a bunch of old photos. But, you know, what I've discovered is I look at those old photos. 
Some of these people, I don't even know their names. I don't know who they are. I'm told I'm related, but I don't know. You know, I, I asked my parents, can you write the names of these people? They go, well, we know those two, but we don't even know who those people are. I don't even know. I actually learned recently from my parents, they took a trip back to Sweden and they discovered that uh, when you die in Sweden and you're buried, right, and you have a tomb, you have a gravestone there, right, and your relatives come and, I don't know, they do something, they talk to the stone, they visit you, they show their respects, but at some point in time, if the relatives don't want to pay for the upkeep of the stone anymore in Sweden, you're gone. <laughs> Can you believe it? Like, wow, I thought the Swedes were compassionate people. Nobody wants to pay. They just take your stone away. Right? So I have lots of dead relatives that I don't know their name, and I don't know if they have a gravestone anymore. I don't know anything about them. And you know, the crazy, tragic reality is that is going to be true for all of us. Right? History will march on, and there will be those who come after us, and they don't even know our names. That is, ugh, that's Hevel, right? That is that is vanity. Vanity means this. There's nothing that you can do to direct the course of history. There's very little that you can do to preserve your tiny little contribution to history. That's vanity. Frustrating, isn't it? But wait, there's more. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Life under the sun is vanity. Why? Because humanity is finite. That means we are finite. It means you are finite. Read with me chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. And it is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after the wind because in much wisdom there is much grief and in increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Solomon says, and, and rightly so, not, not arrogance. He said, I'm as wise as, they've, as any man who's ever been. And yet I can't figure this out. Right? The, the wisest among us can't get to the answer of this question of finding meaning under the sun. Instead, he experiences frustration. The deeper I went into these questions, the more frustrating it was for me. Look at chapter 8, verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he doesn't know. He cannot discover. And the more you understand, the more frustrating actually life appears to be. So the future is hidden from us, Solomon says. The present's confusing to us. The past is forgotten to us. And that's the best that wisdom can uncover. There are limits to wisdom. And even if you become very, very, very wise and you uncover lots of truth, your life ends. 
before you've actually gotten the final answers that you're searching for. Read with me chapter 3, verse 19. It says, For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from dust, and all return to dust. Chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. What's interesting is this word for vanity, hevel, futility, is also translated as breath. It's used in the psalm, Psalm chapter 39, verse 4. It says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere hevel, a mere vanity, a mere breath. So hevel is uh, something that's meaningless, It's also something that is transitory. It is a breath. In other words, Psalm is saying is you can search and you can search and you can search. Even if you're as wise as I am, you'll never get to those answers. And guess what? And then uh, you die. Oh, man. That's discouraging. St. Jerome wrote this. He said, what is more vain than this vanity? That the earth which was made for humans stays, but humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into the dust. And in fact, it's worse than that. Our wisdom is limited. Our lives are limited. Our lives are like a breath. But we live our lives as broken creatures, fallen creatures, who are actually rebellious against the the God who can give life to us. Chapter 7, verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Interestingly, another translation for the word hevel or vanity is literally the word idol. Deuteronomy 32. They've made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their hevel, with their idol, with their breath, with their foolishness, with their futility. An idol is like a breath because an idol is nothing. It doesn't actually have meaning. So, chapter 9, verse 3 sums this up. It says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. That is, we all end our lives with death. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. What's he saying? He's saying, We chase after foolish things all of our lives. And our lives are like a breath, they're short, and then we die. Oh, that's discouraging. Right? When you really face the reality of that, uh, that's emptiness. It's vanity. He says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Under the sun, life is vanity. Why? Because humanity itself is finite. Humanity is broken. It's fallen. So my question is this. Why exactly did uh, Solomon reach this conclusion? Is he just depressed? Well, I, I would argue he was depressed. I mean, he was, he was pretty, pretty discouraged, pretty blue. There's points in time in the book where he says, I just, I hated life. Right? I hated all of my life. Chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Chapter 4, verse 2. 
says, I actually congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who never existed, who has never seen evil, the evil activity which is done under the sun. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than good ointment. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Okay, very Job-like. Right, very Job-like. Very discouraged, very depressed. But then he alternately would also have moments where he just simply able to stop and enjoy the blessings in life. So was he depressed? Well, I think so. Uh, Was he ignorant? Why did he reach these conclusions? Was he just ignorant? Well, you know what? He didn't have all the information we have. Okay, very clearly. And when you go to a movie, you don't want to get there halfway through or three quarters of the way through, right? You want to see the whole story. You want to see how the story develops. So you start at the beginning, go to the end. Same when you read a novel, right? You want to open and begin in chapter one. I hope I didn't spoil the fact that there's a big planet thing that blows up. <laughs> yeah, just watch the old ones. You'll get it. Well, there's a story here in the Bible as well. And Solomon doesn't have all the story. In fact, when Solomon writes, there's not really a good sense of what happens after you die. There is an idea of Sheol, which is the the Greek idea of Hades. There is an idea that there is an afterlife, but it's very shadowy. There's also an idea of resurrection, but just hints at it, right? Job says, I know in my flesh I will see God. But Sheol wasn't a, a place that people were excited about going to or thrilled to go to. In fact, you see this also in the Psalms where their, their desire, their objective is to prolong life on the earth and postpone Sheol. So Solomon simply didn't know as much about the afterlife and he certainly wasn't thrilled to go there. So his own personal eschatology in a sense was very limited. and We have to keep that in mind. He also didn't have a great philosophy of history. Where is God moving things? Well, he didn't really know. Remember, he's king in Israel. The kingdom hasn't divided. Israel hasn't been exiled and then restored and brought back. The prophets haven't spoken and said, actually, you're going to be brought back to the land. God's going to restore his kingdom on earth. He's actually going to create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's going to do that through his son. God will become human flesh, die on a cross for your sins. And then return and establish this kingdom for you. You will have the debt removed forever and eternal life. Solomon doesn't know any of that. So he doesn't have that hope and that confidence and that joy in resurrection. So was Solomon ignorant? Yeah, at some level. He did not have all the information that we have. So we have to ask ourselves a question then. Was he right? Was he actually right nevertheless in his conclusions? Have you ever watched um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Any sci-fi comedy fans? Okay. Uh, Well, for those of you uh, who've never seen that, it's kind of a cult classic now. Uh, In that film, there's a a supercomputer. It's called Deep Thought, right? Deep Thought is a supercomputer, and it's grinding away on the ultimate questions in life. It's been assigned to answer the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. So in the course of the movie... It finally uh, runs all of its computations and it spits out an answer. Okay? After 7.5 million years of computations, it gives the answer to the question, the ultimate question in life, and the answer is 42. <laughs> it's 42, right? And uh, the characters respond equally like you do. They're baffled. What, 42? After 7.5 million years of computation, 
the answer to the deepest questions in life is 42? Deep thought responds like this. It says, I checked it very thoroughly, and that quite definitely is the answer. I think the problem, to be quite honest with you, is that you've never actually known what the question is. So the question that we're asking is, is there ultimate meaning? Is there enduring satisfaction and fulfillment in this life under the sun? That's the question that Solomon is exploring as well. And he's correct. The answer is no, there's not. Under the sun, in this life, there's not enduring, lasting, permanent satisfaction and fulfillment. You can't find it. You can't find it. However, and this is the great however, however, there is enduring satisfaction and fulfillment embedded in eternity. And when we grasp that, eternity also gives meaning to today, right? So I have three application points for you, and this is what we're going to be hammering home in the next seven weeks as we study the book of Ecclesiastes. All is not vanity when we look beyond the sun. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, eternity is settled for you. That's an amazing fact. Eternity is settled for you. You have life that will, in fact, endure forever, and it will be a life that is fulfilling and satisfying, that doesn't lead to a sense of regret or doubt or despair or discouragement or guilt or shame at all, it will be a life that leads to ultimate and complete fulfillment forever and ever and ever and ever. Eternity is settled for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Because the debt of sin has been removed. That barrier into eternity has been removed and God has given you life forever. Now when you live with that perspective, it, it casts uh, all of the joys and frustrations of this life in a completely different light, right? But it, gives, it gives some sense of perspective on those daily annoyances, as well as those long-term frustrations, as well as the pain we experience, Paul will describe them, a man who suffered so deeply, he'll say, momentary and light afflictions. In light of what? The eternal weight of glory that is prepared for us. Eternity casts light on today, and even gives today meaning, gives us perspective On the other hand, if you do not know Jesus Christ, I think today could be the best day of your life here under the sun ever yet. Because today, you can walk out of here with a sense that eternity is settled for you. You can know that you have life that endures forever and ever and ever, and it will be satisfying and fulfilling. You can know that. You can leave here today knowing that. All that you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus Christ has removed the debt of your sin completely before God. When you believe that, The debt is not only removed, but God gives you the promise and the hope of eternal life. And and the gospel itself, it opens up this window into eternity so you can begin to look at your life in a completely different way. And so I would encourage you, if you have not allowed God to open up that window for you into eternity, maybe there's a sense of fear or dread as you approach the ending of your own days, well, that can be entirely gone for you today if you simply believe in Jesus Christ. So what we will be emphasizing throughout the semester is this. Let's look beyond the sun. Let's look beyond the sun to find meaning and hope. Let's look beyond the sun to bring meaning into today. Second, destroy your idols. I mean mean pulverize them. Uh, My prayer for us when when, 
uh, decided to, I wanted to preach Ecclesiastes, this is what I started praying. I prayed that God would speak to every single one of us very directly, very specifically, and I've been praying that all of us would have the courage to actually listen to God and just crush anything that we are trusting in that's not God. You know, Solomon may have been discouraged, he may have been a bit depressed, uh, he may not have known everything that we know, but I will tell you this, Solomon was very courageous in this moment. Now, all of his life now, he's a pretty foolish guy for much of his life, but in this moment, he was very courageous. He actually looked at his life and he acknowledged the fact that he was empty and he couldn't find anything to fill himself up. And that's what God wants to do in every single one of our lives. Get us to the point where all those things that we really believe will give us life, we say, enough, it won't. I confess, it won't. And we allow God just to pulverize our trust in those things, our love of those things. And we will talk in coming weeks about how we identify what those things are in our lives. That we are hoping in, that we are trusting in, that we are chasing after to give a sense of of enduring satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning. And we say, enough of that. It's dead to me. Derek Kidner wrote a short commentary on Ecclesiastes, a really good commentary. He said this, the preacher has good news for us once we can stop pretending that what is mortal is enough for us who have been given a capacity for the eternal. Stop pretending. Stop pretending. And then third, enjoy God's gifts under the sun. Okay, as gifts, not God's, right? No longer idols, no longer things that I actually believe will bring me enduring satisfaction, but just a gift, right? When you, when you go through this process and you're looking beyond the sun and you're allowing God just to crush those idols, you're not, your heart's not set on them any longer. You're not loving those things. Then you can actually enjoy them for what they are. You can enjoy work. You can enjoy relationships. You can enjoy food and drink. You can enjoy all the pleasures of life. You can enjoy creation. You can enjoy all of those things knowing that in the end, all of them are limited and none of them will fill you up, but you can enjoy them just in the moment because that's how they were meant to be enjoyed, Right? Not as gods, but as gifts. And so my encouragement for you this week is this. I want you to do these three things. I want you to meditate on eternity. It really takes some, some time. Where maybe you just you walk, you think, you look at the vastness of creation, and you think about eternity. Eternity. Life going on and on forever without any of the negative that you experience in this life. Okay? And think about how much longer eternity is than today. Just meditate on that a little bit. Second, I want you to begin to ask God's spirit to identify what your idols are and be willing to listen, be willing to let God address them and, and crush them. Stop trusting them. And then take a few moments and just list out those good gifts God has given you and give thanks for them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that through this uh, series in Ecclesiastes that we would gain wisdom and insight we would be able to live comfortably within the limitations and the boundaries that you have set, knowing that you are infinite, but we are not. We are finite creatures, and you alone can bring meaning into our lives. Father, I pray that we would set our hearts on eternity, and I pray, Father, especially for any here who do not know your Son, Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that your Spirit opens up their hearts, opens up that window to eternity, and they believe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me encourage you, uh, read the book of Ecclesiastes again, sitting all the way through. Just one sitting, just read it all the way through. Uh, And if you'd like to have someone pray with you about anything going on in your life today, we'll have some folks up front who'd love to pray with you. God bless you. Uh, If God allows, we'll see you next week.